Welcome to Stories from the NNI. I'm Lisa Friedersdorf, Director of the National Nanotechnology Coordination Office. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Todd Paschal, Assistant Professor of Nanoengineering and Chemical Engineering at the University of California, San Diego. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. To get us started, can you talk a little bit about how you first got involved in nanotechnology? Thank you, Lisa, and thanks for the invitation to have this podcast. In terms of getting involved in, in nanotech, it's actually a, a somewhat interesting story. So I am from Grenada, it's a small island in the South Caribbean, and I did most of my formal schooling there all the way up to high school. And then I came to the U.S. I was 16, graduated high school, and I came to the U.S. and stayed with my dad in Houston, Texas. And he says, you know, it's, you're probably a little young to go to college, so why don't you do an extra year of um, high school up here? That way you can learn about you know, American history. I, I had taken pretty much all of the AP classes, so I, I didn't have to take any of those. So I had two classes my senior year, effectively, of high school. One was gym, you know, PE, and I took ballroom dancing. <laughs> and the other one was American history. And so I had a whole lot of time on my hands. And most of that time then I spent in the library and reading. And I came across you know, various books. I was you know, a sci-fi nerd, still am. Then I came across a book by a professor at MIT, and he was talking about very small systems and how those very small systems work. And he kept raving about uh, this guy who had never heard of, um, Richard Feynman, and it was all over this book. And there's plenty of room at the bottom. And you know, so it's littered throughout this book were references to this, te- to this plenty of room at the bottom. So my dad, who was a computer scientist, I go home and I'm like, have you ever heard of this guy? You know, it's this Richard Feynman guy. And he's like, oh, yeah, Feynman, of course. And he pulls off from the shelf a copy of his lecture notes. A lot of his lecture notes uh, have been bound. And in there was his you know, seminal, there's plenty of room at the bottom lecture. And so I poured over that day and night. Just fascinating to me that we could start thinking about doing engineering at the nanoscale. And, and that kind of what sparked that interest in my head. I always thought that I was going to follow in his footsteps and, and do computer science. And so when I went to college, you know, I made up my mind I was going to do computer science. But my college advisor, she gave me a whole bunch of classes, you know, physics, a lot of physics classes, a lot of chemistry classes. And so I ended up becoming really interested in physical chemistry. And so when I was starting to think about going to graduate school, I had a various amount of summer research opportunities as well. And one of them was at Caltech with the person who became my Ph.D. advisor, Bill Goddard. And he was and is, you know, one of these these pioneers in the field of thinking about how to use computer simulations to think about materials. And so that was a perfect fit for me because I got to do computer science and think about programming and coding, but I also got to do material science. And by its very nature, when you're using computers, at least at the level in which we were using it to look at atoms and molecules, that gets to the nanoscale. So now here I am, you know, at the house that Feynman built, doing nanotech with Bill Goddard, who I looked up to for so many years. And so it was just a marriage of, of so many different forces that kind of led me to where I am today. So can you talk about your current research and what you're focused on? Yeah, so our research group, we call ourselves a materials physics research lab. And what we do is a variety of things, but I think the common thread that sort of holds everything together is that we're fundamentally interested in the forces that inform microscopic systems. So that's broad and vague, and, and it's, it's meant to be. It's sort of intentional. 
because we do everything from looking at the properties of water and interfaces with water and to batteries and fuel cells uh, for energy storage to biological systems and to nanomaterials. And so we sort of play in this space of trying to understand how the fundamental properties of the building blocks, whether those building blocks are atoms or molecules, conspire to give functionality at the nanoscale and then eventually how that all leads to a larger scale function at the macroscopic scale. So can you talk about the type of students or the makeup of your group? Yeah, so I was pretty intentional when I started my group in that I wanted people from different backgrounds who thought very differently than I did. My approach to advising is sort of to give the students enough space to fail and fail and fail and fail and fail. And then, you know, hopefully someday through all of that failure, we we learn something new about the systems that we're interested in. And so the students then come from all kinds of different backgrounds. I have students that are from, uh, come from a physics background, from a chemistry background. Um, one student that has, is I would consider more of a classic material science student and a couple of chemical engineers is in, in there as well. And one student who is just a, almost a pure computer scientist. Currently we have four graduate students doing a variety of different things and at least six or seven or eight maybe uh, undergrads as well. And we even have two high school students who are also joining the group and performing research. And I must say, I, you know, all the students are amazing. The high school students in particular, I, I was just thinking back to when I was in high school, I was like, there was no way that I was thinking about doing material science research. As a high school student, it's incredible. But we're, we're so happy to have them and they, they bring such a, a unique perspective to the lab and we're all better off for it. So, Todd, I understand you're part of a relatively new MRSEC. Could you talk a little bit about that center and what the current research areas are? Yeah, so I am part of the UC San Diego Materials Research Science and Engineering Center. It's an acronym to get used to, MRSEC around here. And it's about a year and a half old. We got it right when COVID was starting. We have two main thrusts in our MRSEC. One is called, which I'm co-leading with Professor Andrea Tao, who is an experimental nanomaterials spectroscopy person down here. We call it predictive assembly. And the idea behind our thrust is this. What if we could figure out the what are called energy landscapes for nanomaterials and then the building blocks for nanomaterials. So that could be either something as small as individual molecules and we are trying to understand how those molecules come together or they can be nanoparticles or they can be even larger systems like um, synthetic proteins, for instance. Um, and But the idea is if we can understand how these little building blocks come together, can we then change them in very deliberate ways so that they come together in very, very deliberate ways, right? So can we engineer the surface somehow so that these materials come together edge on edge or they come together face on face? And moreover, once we have this sort of nanoscale control over these materials, can we then create superstructures from them where we just put the building blocks um, together and they will self-assemble into larger scale materials? And so the idea then is to sort of a new paradigm in engineering in that instead of a top-down approach, this is a bottom-up approach to creating materials. So how do you create materials on demand? We call it a Santa Claus machine, right? So if you've been good or if you're good enough, then you kind of create these building blocks that are 
uh, specific uh, enough, but also that incorporates enough sort of diversity and fluctuations at the nanoscale so that you can get stable materials at the macro scale. So it's called predictive assembly because we're really interested in trying to understand fundamentally how these building blocks interact and then how they will assemble into larger scale structures. So that's thrust number one. Thrust number two is called living materials. And there we're embedding living cells into materials. So it's such that the and exploiting kind of all of the great tools of synthetic biology to create materials that are responsive to their environment. So materials that sort of sense their environment and produces responses based on environmental toxins or environmental conditions. So the canonical example is that you have, you know, you're wearing a suit and you enter this room and in this room, there's all kinds of different molecules that are running around. There's viruses and bacteria that are hanging around. What if embedded in, in your suit were these receptor cells that can bind to a bacteria or a virus? And once they bind to it, further they elicit a bunch of processes that further downstream produces a countermeasure to that virus or they produce downstream some sort of fluorescence so that your your suit glows to tell you that you've now come in contact with um, a virus or something like that. And so um, so those are the, the two thrusts for our immersing. So I want to ask you about instrumentation. We know that often nanoscale research requires specialized instrumentation. Can you comment on the types of tools that you use? In our MERSEC, we have uh, part of the leadership team, a really excellent person who has been uh, assigned effectively to facilities and to not only just using the current facilities that we have, which, you know, goes from microscopes and STMs and sort of traditional materials, but also to procure new facilities and new instruments that will enable even more extensive research. So, for instance, we recently um, got a, a pretty large grant from the NSF to buy a new a sort of small angle scattering machine that is going to be used to characterize all of our materials. So effectively, you're shooting photons or you know neutrons at this at your material and it scatters off and, and then that creates a pattern effectively. And so interpreting that pattern then tells you something about the material itself. And so we got one of the best machines to do that. And then that becomes really important for doing nanoscale research because, of course, you know, they're at the scales that we can't see with our eyes. And so we need to come up with ways of actually unseeing is believing, so understanding what was happening to our materials. So we have microscopes and spectroscopic tools to interrogate at the nanoscale. A lot of them are housed in partnership with the Qualcomm Institute here on campus. And then another part of it is we make, because of the predictive assembly, we make um, full use of the supercomputing center that's here at UC San Diego in order to get the necessary computing power to actually predict properties of materials at the atomic scale. When you look back, what do you think are the most significant advancements that have been made in nanoscience and nanotechnology? And then looking forward, where do you see the greatest opportunities? Probably, I would say, what I think may have been one of the biggest triumphs is in just really careful control of nanoscale materials. And to that, I'd like to actually, something else we have been really interested in is using biological materials to do nanoscience. 
And so there are all of these sort of stories, both that are commercially viable and some that are still in the academic realm of successes of nanotech. But I would say I think the biggest success has been a change in the thinking of scientists and engineers and aspiring scientists and engineers coming up to even consider that we can do this. And if you think about it, it's a little bit incredible that what it is that, that we we're trying to do here trying to control matter at the level of individual atoms or individual molecules. It's really mind-boggling when you think about the complexity of those systems and the chaos that, that happens at those scales and somehow you know, to try to make useful materials out of that. And so to me, just getting people in the mind frame of trying this thing is a huge and, and important first step. Where do I see all of it going? I think the truth is we have really big challenges as a species. You know, if I could sort of zoom out even further, whether it's related to food or water resources or climate, all of that is going to affect how we interact together in the future, right? So from a geopolitical perspective, but even you know, in a much more local level in sort of, you know, what do cities look like in the future? What do suburbs look like? You know, how does, how does that all work? How do we get the resources to the people that need it um, in order to have fulfilling lives. You know, we have these huge challenges and I'm not convinced that our current way of thinking about engineering or science can meet those challenges. So we need new ideas and we need new people in the enterprise working towards it. And I think nanotech and nanoscience has the possibility to actually meet the challenges. And people are working now on incredible new ideas to sort of mitigate climate change, or at least the worst effects of climate change, to desalinate water using sort of you know, carbon nanotubes or specialized membranes. And so all of that is there and it's, it's within our grasp. And I think the most exciting thing for me as, as someone who's kind of been working on this since, since grad school is that the pace of discovery and the new things that are happening I mean, it's almost too much to, to take in. You know, you can spend your whole day just marveling at the incredible things people are doing. And then we're trying some new ideas down here um, as well, um, as we talked about before. And, and that's just, it's, it's just incredible. And we need more people doing it, of course. And, we, you know, we're, we're going to train sort of the, the next generation to of big thinkers um, in that space. Those are great challenges that you've identified where nanotechnology can play a role. And I just want to invite you and our listeners to keep an eye on nano.gov and stay engaged in the conversation because in the most recent strategic plan we released, we've introduced the concept of national nanotechnology challenges where we really hope to mobilize the nanotechnology community to help solve big problems just like you were talking about. And just as the nanotechnology community came together and helped with the response to the pandemic, we'll be leaning on the community very hard to help us design these activities and these engagements in order to have a big impact. So thanks for highlighting all of those challenges. I want to talk a little bit about students. And you mentioned you have undergrads in your lab. And I want to, of course, do a shout out to the Nano Engineering and Technology Society, or NETS, there at UC San Diego that participates in Next Tech, the student network that we facilitate. When you talk with undergrads or even the high school students that you have in your laboratory, what advice do you give them regarding potential research or careers in nanotechnology? 
as I said before, we have big challenges, but with that comes enormous opportunity to do something that truly, truly, truly matters. At the local level matters kind of every day to your family and to your friends, but matters at the national level, matters at the international level. So the solutions to these big problems are going to come from people from diverse backgrounds who approach the problem in different ways. I teach graduate thermodynamics. I'm a big fan of entropy and I'm a big fan of sort of getting enough interested people in a room and just presenting a problem and just trying to understand possible paths forward. And I would say this about the undergrads and even the high school students. I can't stop gushing over them because I learn as much from them from our meetings either one-on-one or group meetings, as I'm sure they learned from me. What's really interesting is that the things that matter to them, like if we were just to listen to them and we'd ask them, what is it that you're concerned about? Those are the big challenges and they get it. And so the advice is, those are the challenges, but we need you. We need all of you to be a part of this somehow. We need the artists who who think um, differently and may not necessarily have a technical background, but we need their imagination and we need sort of the enthusiasm of the math um, students and the computer scientists, biologists. We need everyone to participate. There is space for you here. We need you. You are going to write the solutions to these problems. It's going to come down to you. And I personally, I'm just happy to be a part of that, to help them through that and see what interesting things are going to come up with. Well, Todd, I just want to thank you again for this conversation. I've really enjoyed talking with you today. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? As a professor here, I have a deep, deep, deep appreciation, of course, for you know, all, all that I do is funded by you, all the people that are listening. So you are a part of this as well. And so all of the successes that we have is, you know, a credit to the American public who funds all that we do. And whenever I get a chance to talk to people outside of science, you can see the, the enthusiasm and the hunger and, the, you know, just the sheer joy that they get um, from talking about the possibilities in the future. And so the support of the public is, is obviously vital. But also, I would say, you know, go to your local college and chat up one of the professors. There's nothing that professors like more than talking about what it is that they do. <laughs> so, you know, so, so that kind of engagement, though, is, is critical as, again, we, we try to move forward um, to, to solve some of these big challenges. 